Welcome to the Successfully Unemployed Show, the place where ordinary people become extraordinary by finding the path to financial freedom through entrepreneurship, side hustles, and passive income. We have already blazed the path, showing you how to retire early and have financial independence, so you will never work for someone else again. Successfully Unemployed, your place for freedom. It is time for the Successfully Unemployed Show. My name is Dustin Heiner, and I'm here to help you learn how to quit that J-O-B, that just overbroke job, with every means possible. Now, in the show, we interview fantastic experts who show us how they, not just how they did it, but they will teach us every single step of the way to be successful and employed just like they are. They're going to give you all the tips, the tools, and everything that you need to be successfully unemployed, because there are so many ways to be successfully unemployed and no longer work for somebody else in a J-O-B. And hit that subscribe button. Let's get in there. Let's start and learn today how to be successfully unemployed like our expert today. Let's do this. Welcome, everybody, to the Successfully Unemployed Show. I am super excited to have you, and I'm also super excited to have my guest on. In fact, she's a close friend. We actually, my wife and my four kids, we flew to, to uh, Europe to hang out with them. They're in Germany. They're fantastic. They're, they're missionaries. They're from America. They're in missionaries in, in Germany, and they're a fantastic family. Really, really love them, love getting to know them and, and just experiencing life together. And on top of that, I found that Marcy is fantastic, or my guest now, I just released it. Marcy's my guest. Marcy Pusey's my guest. She's a fantastic writer, as well as helps other people to write as well. So Marcy, I'm super excited. Thank you so much for being on the Successfully Unemployed show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. So everybody listening, Marcy's literally in Germany right now. She and her husband are missionaries, and mm-hmm. they're missionaries in Germany right now. So if there's a little bit of a lag, it's because they're, I'm in Phoenix, and they're <laughs> in Germany right now. So, But um, we should do fantastic. And so, Marcy, yeah. how do you make money? How do you, instead of working a nine-to-five job, how do you make money, you know, is writing books? It just sounds kind of so crazy that people can make money writing books, and any normal, everyday person can do it. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So the ways that I'm making money right now are by writing books, publishing them, and I coach other people in how to write and publish, and that's a paid thing (laughs) that I do. I do some editing uh, specifically for children's book writers, though if it's a really special project and I want to take it on, I can edit all different projects. And building building a kind of business on top of my books too. So my books are oriented towards the foster adoption theme towards children. And so I'll do school visits or I'll do speaking engagements, um, all sorts of things that kind of connect me to my audience, but also contribute to my income. That's great. And thinking about, I've written a a couple books, um, but thinking about writing a children's books, like, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. Like, artists, getting them drawing and all that sort of stuff, getting, you know, creative so that the kids would be drawn. And there's so much we could talk about. But before we get into there, how was your life like before, before you were missionaries, before you were, you know, starting to write, what was, what did life look like? And how is that now transitioning to where now you're like, I can actually make money doing this where I'm writing books as well as helping other people to write books as well. Yeah. So before we came to Germany, which was about eight years ago now, um, we were fostering children through the foster care system. My husband was working a full-time job as a teacher in a low-income school district. And I was trying to be that dutiful 
domestic wife to keep the fort down and to raise the kids. But that's expensive. That's expensive. Even even raising foster kids with the bit of the supplement they get is is expensive. And so I just remember wanting to put my kids, my younger kids into preschool and not being able to afford it. And so I took on an extra side job that was online. It was remote as a social media manager for a woman in order to pay for preschool. And while I liked that, what it meant was that when my kids were sleeping or off busy, I was working in order to pay for that. Um, but then also up until that point, my education had all been in therapy and social services. So I remember this, I, this is, I have some mom guilt around this, but I remember my son being born. He's a handful of months old and I'm still wanting to work. And so I had been working as a behavior analyst for a company that I, I loved that line of work but I couldn't do it with a baby. So I switched from being a behavior analyst to cleaning the offices, to cleaning the offices. And then I would bring him in his little car seat and he'd sit there while I swept and cleaned toilets. And I just, I just needed to help support our family or wanted to, but didn't know how to do it any other way, except at that moment with my newborn baby, cleaning the offices of the place where I had been a behavior analyst. So yeah, that's what I did before. And so from there, you obviously are now missionaries been there for eight years. And mm -hmm. when my wife and my four kids came and visited you guys, we had a blast. I mean, we even went to, to Paris. Uh -huh. We went to Switzerland. We did so many amazing things. And I remember going with you to see Notre Dame before it burnt down. Like that yeah. was amazing yeah. that we got to see that before it actually mm -hmm. burnt down. And my kids are always, Oh, we miss Corbin and Hannah, you know? So it's, it's great that our families are so close. We love hanging out with you guys. And now you also, being missionaries, you have to raise support. You know, you have to raise money from other people to be feel charitable to say, yes, I'm gonna, I believe in your mission, what you're gonna do. Let me give you money. But now at the same time, so support comes and goes, but then you also realize, you know what? I still also need to make some money on top of that too. So talk to us about the desire to write your first book and then how you could realize or what was the process to realize you can actually, you know, do fairly well writing these books, selling the books and creating a business out of it, as well as teaching people. How did that play out? Yeah. You know, I've always been a writer. I have some fun memories of being a little girl winning a contest at the Boys and Girls Club where I won tickets to take my family to the circus. And I grew up very, very low income on welfare, sometimes a single parent home. We'd never been to anything like a circus. And so my essay won those tickets and I got to treat my family to that experience. And I think in that moment, something embedded itself in my heart and spirit that maybe I had a gift that could not only be good, but could be a gift for other people too. It, it was something I got to give my family. So that just kind of stayed there as a little seed. I forgot about it. You know, I got to high school and college and took all the tests for what should you be when you grow up? And they came up counselor and teacher and social worker. So I was like, okay. So that's what I did. I followed that track and, and no one ever told me in there. I think maybe because it wasn't a possibility at the time. It's amazing what changes in just a handful of years, but no one ever told me I could be an author and make money like that. I don't, know if there's colleges for that. I don't, I don't know, but I just, I didn't know. So I, I did the things the test told me to do. I got those degrees. I've got the certification and the licenses. I did the things. And 
Yet I still had all of these stories that just would come out of me. I think in book titles, I think in characters and themes. So one day I was talking with a friend who was writing for the traditional publishing industry or trying to publish traditionally. And I knew that in the writing industry at that time, especially traditionally, it's who you know in large part that gets you started. So because of that relationship, I decided I would start writing children's books as well because this friend was doing it and she had been able to sell one of her books to a publisher, a local publisher. So I didn't even really choose what I wanted to write. I mean, I did, but I also didn't. I just was like, well, this is where I'll start. Somewhere in that journey, that was seven years of writing and trying to publish traditionally. And at the end of that seven-year period, I was at a conference where my book was read aloud anonymously to some agents. A number of books were. Um, my book got the furthest with them of any of the books that were read that day. And then as they would listen to other books being read, they kept referring back to my book as the model example of how to write a good quality story. Yet, at the end of that workshop and conference, they did not choose to represent me, and they couldn't even really say why. So I just had this pivotal moment of, are you kidding? Like, I can spend seven years, money, energy, capacity, go to all the conferences, all the workshops, be part of all the right clubs and societies, and learn that I'm a very good writer, and still not publish and not get to make kids happy and make money doing it. So at that point, self-publishing was becoming more of a viable option. And I encountered a school that offered to teach me how to not only write and publish, but but aim for a bestseller status. And so that school was primarily for adult nonfiction, that self-publishing school. At the time, it was only adult nonfiction, and I joined, even though that was the exact opposite of what I had been writing. Followed the process, wrote my book. Everything they told me to do, I did it. And everything they promised would happen, did, including hitting bestseller and immediately getting invited to be a keynote speaker on various stages. And I was able to recoup all of my investment into my book within a month of hitting publish. All of it, the cost of the school, the book production, all of it. And I just remember kind of sitting back going, oh, that wasn't a scam. And this is real. Like you, this is, a, this is, <laughs> I kind of just went into it feeling kind of small. Like that's probably for the other people. I just want to see if I can learn to hit publish. But what I learned is that publishing um, is a very legit option for not only making money, but also just growing your impact, which is my heart. I'm getting to impact families that I deeply care about, both now families of adult nonfiction and children's fiction. Um, but I have no agents or editors taking their cut out of the middle. So that's kind of, it's, it's been a journey of these different kind of pivots. Um, I just sort of fell into, I feel like realizing that this was a viable income option for us. That's, that's fantastic. And the, the having to go through those trials and struggles from the very beginning to where now it seems like anybody and everybody, obviously with Amazon and other companies that you could literally publish anything, like you could make a pamphlet and say, and call yeah. it a book, Yeah, <laughs> but you can't, it, it takes a lot more work to actually tell good stories uh -huh. or to actually have a quality, quality book. I remember when I was writing my very first book, how to quit your job with rental properties. I know I'm not creative at all. I'm literally not creative. So my title is very straightforward. How to quit your job with rental properties. Um, but I remember talking to you about that. And you said, well, I just did this and I went through the school. And so, yeah, it's 
learning how to do it is is really great. Now, there's obviously going down the path of getting a publisher and you know going through that whole process, which we're definitely not going to touch on that. I want to touch on self-publishing. Now, if it's you know uh, adult nonfiction or it's children's, it's just in my opinion, it seems like it's a little bit of different content. But it really what it boils down to is hopefully you're telling a good story, you're getting a good. Uh, you're helping people to get a conclusion of what you want them to come out of. And you're utilizing the technology that's out there today to make a publish and publish your own book. So if we were to want to get started, and now I know it's really easy just to, you know, type some words on a piece of paper or on Word document or something like that. But how do we know, let's start at the very beginning, before we even publish the book, like, how do we know that we have a good story or you know, how do we know that we have something that we should actually tell the world about? Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. And I think there's probably a few questions in there. So I'll try to categorize them. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, where to start and how to know that what you've got is good. I, I honestly, when, when I wrote that first book that I didn't plan on writing, it's called Reclaiming Hope. Um, overcoming the challenges of parenting foster and adopted children. It's right here. For those of you who can see it, here it is. It's a great book. Yes. It was really the outpouring of my soul. Um, the the leader of that school, Chandler, taught me to choose an idea that was easy, fast, and that would give that would be exciting for me to write. He knew those three things would help you learn the process the easiest because you're excited to write it. And so that's what brought me to foster care and adoption was I just knew it inside out. But it really just became kind of an outpouring of my soul on paper and maybe even really more of a question like, is anyone else out there who who feels the same? I think for the most part, I'm sure there's exceptions, but that if that is what you're writing, it can't not be good. I, I think that we each have a story in us. And I know this is sort of oversaid and maybe overdone a bit, like everyone's got their story, but but I really do think we have all been through challenges that have, have deepened us or changed us or taught us things that are valuable to the world. And even if the end result, the end idea isn't totally brand new, your version of it might be exactly the version that someone can hear where they couldn't hear the other versions. And so if your heart is to help people, whether that's sharing your own life journey or sharing your expertise and knowledge, then the first step is to get it down. I would say to not even overthink it or worry too much about if it's good as far as the quality of your writing, but to just be willing to get it down and get a draft of some kind. And and thinking about who is this person that you're writing for? Who is the most desperate for the help that you're offering? And who is the most ready to chase it down. Really spend some time that, with that person. That's great. And you, it seems like you can probably go one of two ways because you just touched on that. I want to definitely want us, uh, us to think about, and I want to think about, are we writing for a million people or should we write to just one person or like, how should we write in order to make sure that we make the most impact on the people that are going to be reading the book? 
Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, yes, we're writing to a million people and we're writing to one. <laughs> we are writing to one in the sense that when we are writing and we ask ourselves, how should I structure it? What should I say here? What should the flow look like? Should I use long chapters or short chapters? We're always going back to that one person. Who's the most desperate for the help I can offer and who's the most ready to chase it down right now? We're writing for that person, knowing that they represent a whole community of people and that people outside of them will read it and also benefit too. But if you write it thinking of the million, you're actually writing it for no one. People won't recognize themselves in it if it's too general. So we, we kind of hone in on that person and, and write it. And so let me say too, I'm speaking, that's a lot adult nonfiction. You know, if you're writing fiction, you're still thinking about who is it that you want to most entertain or or challenge with the deeper messages or plot lines of your story. If you're writing memoir, that's different too. I say your first draft of memoir is 100% for you. You don't think about a reader. You need to wrestle with the truth of your own story uncensored. So I always say, don't think of anyone else. Don't care what grandma's going to think when she reads it. Put all the truth in. Draft two is when you'll start to think about the reader and begin to censor the thing. So there's some variances depending on what you're writing, but ultimately before you publish, you will have been thinking about who will most benefit. That's, that's great. Um, and I com- I completely wholeheartedly agree with that because as you're writing and telling your story, you've talked about this a lot. I want to dive deeper into this because telling stories, a lot of people would think, okay, you want to tell your story. You want to, you want to share your story, but I've heard a lot of people share their story and it's either bland or they mm. skip over details. Mm-hmm. I don't feel drawn in how do we make sure that we're telling the, not, not necessarily the right story, because our story is our story. We're telling our story. But how do well. we make sure that we're doing it well enough that people are going to say, I want to listen to more or I want to read more. I want to continue yeah. because this is done so well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That was the other part. Um, one is to read a lot of really good books. So you're going to sort of through osmosis catch different writing styles, different techniques, different strategies that that capture you. And then be slow about it. Pause to ask yourself, why are you feeling so engaged right now? Why is your heart pounding and in this scene? Why are you having any kind of emotional response? Because that's what makes a book good. It made you feel something. It made you feel something. So good storytelling isn't about just a plot line, point by point narrative of here's what happened in my life. You're thinking of it as I want my reader to feel something. I need to engage them by telling this well enough. So go to those books that have done that for you and really understand why and how that happened. That's one way. Two is I think learning, like just being a lifelong learner about it. So whether there's an online course you can take like I did or a workshop you can be part of or anywhere you can grow as as a writer, if that's what you're trying to do, um, then do it. We're never going to be done learning. And so essentially every book you write should be better than the last one because you're continuing to learn and grow. So read and then be willing to, to educate yourself, however that comes to become a better crafter. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's great. I, I love the idea of tailoring it to types of books that you really enjoy. I'll give you an example. So when I wrote How to Quit Your Job with Rental Properties, so straightforward, so straight, like get to the point X, Y, and Z, because that's just, 
I, I, I didn't know how to write. And so I just was putting X, Y, and Z. You literally buy a property, you do this. And you, I just, I walked through the process. And then as I was writing my next book, which was successfully unemployed, it's you know, obviously the title of the show, but I wrote the book successfully unemployed. And when I was writing it, I was realizing that my first book was really factual and I really need to do a better job telling the story. So what I did was I said, why do I really love two different books? Um, four hour work week by Tim Ferriss is really, really good. Why did like, there were so many things that, that stuck in my brain, even though like the book was, was, wasn't a phenomenal, there's points that stuck in my brain. And then also rich dad, poor dad was another one that literally stuck in my brain. And I realized it was because of stories, telling stories that apply to whatever the lesson was that they were trying to teach and how they intertwine those stories into the lessons. And so I went back, I, I said, okay, I want to write successful unemployed to be a good book that people want to read that grab them. So I literally went back and read them again. And don't, don't tell uh, Tim Ferriss this, but I literally <laughs> opened up the book to each beginning of the chapter. So you'll see the beginning of his chapter. He literally starts with something like as, as so like out of the blue, like my hands were sweating again. Like that's, those are the literally the first sentence that he'll say. And like, what in the world does that mean? Like what's going to happen? They, I want to read more. And so it makes you want to read more. So every, every single chapter that I was doing, I was like, I got to take a you know page out of Tim Ferriss. So I read it and like, that's a good idea. And then I thought of what's the lesson in this topic that I want them to learn. Let me pull out a, a memory out of myself that I can actually paint the picture walking through. So yeah, I love the idea of telling stories and being able to utilize other things. Like it's the feelings and emotions. I, I think you're absolutely right. How do we then grab that? Even though we, you know, we read other authors, we've also learned and we're lifelong learners. How do we though, make sure we're grabbing those emotions out of people? Like, what, is there a formula? Is it like, how do we do that? Yeah. I wish there was a formula. I think there probably are. <laughs> there are plot lines that you can follow. So for example, when I wrote my memoir, while we slept, I think you were part of our lives, or at least shortly after when this happened, this is uh, finding hope and healing after homicide. Um, so it's about the murder of my mother-in-law by my father-in-law while we were sleeping down the hall four days before our first anniversary. It's true. It's true story. So it's nonfiction. But because I'm a relatively unknown person, I had to write it using a fiction plot line because I needed the story to be engaging so that people would stick with it to read the whole thing. Right. Because I'm not, you know, Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> Like, I don't have a name that's going to sell it, right? Like, so I had to be creative. So I think in some forms of storytelling, even though it's nonfiction, doing some study around what makes a fiction story engaging, you'll find some of that formula. So for example, with my book, I did. I followed a, a, a fiction plot line. I started in the climax of my story. Now, this whole book is story, so I'm not teaching anything per se. I'm hoping people will catch things from our life experience, but it's not straight education. So starting with the climax, then I, which is like, I wake up into the murder scene. I, I'm, I'm waking up into a crime scene. I tell all the way up through, I'm sitting on the curb outside. The police have taken us out and I get the words, the final affirmation that she has died. Then I stop right there and I go all the way back to a year before I lead my reader back up to the climax. Cause if I had started there, nobody cares. Nobody cared about the year before until they knew what I was leading to. Right. So starting with half the climax, 
go to the year before lead up, finish the climax, and then I can talk about what happened after. The feedback I get from the book is that it's very engaging. People couldn't put it down. They read it in a couple of hours. It's my best work yet. Like that's what people are saying. But when you're asking for a formula, I did follow one. I followed a fiction plot line that I knew would be the most engaging for someone who doesn't care about me yet, (laughs) right? To get them to care. I had that emotional piece. In order to make them feel something the fastest, I had to start in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the story. Like you mentioned with your author saying, my hands were sweaty. Like we're starting right in the middle of something. So obviously with a book like yours, you needed to give really practical guidance. That's important. It's some people don't want the story when they just want to know what to do. But in that kind of story, in that more self-help or educational book, you want to weave them in and out and you want the story to always be strategic in supporting whatever you're trying to teach. So is there a formula? There's probably a few, but again, it always comes down to who are you writing it for and how do they most want to engage your information? Your audience might have wanted some stories of connection from you, but mostly they wanted to know what to do. So if you're thinking about who's that person who's ready to go, what do they need? Okay, they need to know I'm credible. They need to know that I have the life experience. So I'm going to share those stories, but I'm also going to be really careful to not overdo it and just say, now, go use your money and buy these houses, flip them. Here's how you do it, right? So I know that's not a real clear answer for like, here's the formula, but hopefully that gives you an idea of some examples that you can use depending on what genre genre you're writing and how to be strategic, again, focused on your reader. So you gave us a lot of great things to, to chew on. And those are big, broad, like if you're going to, when, when you're writing the entire book, this is how you, you intertwine stories, and which is amazing. Let's dive into a little bit deeper into specifically, how do we, like, if we are going to write one specific scene, how are we going to, or, or should we paint a picture so we, that we make the reader feel like they're literally walking in your shoes? Like, how do we make sure that in that storytelling, the overarching thing is, is telling the entire story or just sharing where somebody feels like they're emotionally. Let's walk through, how do we make sure that they feel like, like as we're painting a picture, that they are either themselves feeling it or they're gripped mm-hmm. and they're like, man, I want to read more. Yeah, that's good too. Within the writing community, we have a saying that is said a lot. So probably even people outside have heard it. And that is show, don't tell. Oftentimes when we're writing that first draft, we're just telling a lot. Man, I I felt sad. I didn't know what to do. I was lost. I was angry. And those are good things, but they're telling. They're not showing. And showing is just using a kind of descriptive language to give the reader an emotional sense of what that was like. So instead of just saying, I was so sad, I mean, again, it depends, but just, I would go through my days and feel so heavy. You know, it took everything I could could in me to keep the tears in my eyes. And yet I still trudged through each day. You know, like you're, you're just inviting people into the actual experience of it, which requires a different level of vulnerability too. I think writing our stories we think is either for the income or for the person we're hoping to impact. But first, it's always about our journey with our own story or the own, our own lesson that we're trying to teach. And so it'll come up again and again as you're, you're working through it because that's safe, right? For me just to say, I was sad and move on. I've left a distance between myself and my own story as well. So when I have to dig in and invite someone into that experience, I'm being vulnerable and creating a space where they can feel it, but I'm also feeling it too. 
And I would say that's the first sign of really good quality writing. That's great. I love that. I know even with, say, doing a podcast interview or telling my story from stage or anything like that, exact same principles apply. It's in the storytelling process. You need to encourage them or help them to feel as if you did, you know, as you're walking through. So I think that's great. Now, let's say we already have, let, you're fantastic at all types of book writing, but there might be, I, there's something that I wouldn't have no clue is the children's book. Like how in the world do you do children's book? Let's take a, a quick shift from telling stories to now I have a story. And I really want to tell it in a children's book. But, you know, if you write a, a regular fiction book, you're literally going to take up, I don't know, uh, 50,000 words, 60,000 words, you know, translates into like, you know, 300 pages to say a whole lot. Of, but in a children's book, you have like 10 pages and you have like a couple words <laughs> in there. Oh, my goodness. That's like, how do you tell a good story doing that? So talk to us about how do we write a good children's book? Yeah, I love that. And you know what? There's a number of articles I've written that we can refer your your audience to, your listeners to, to read more in detail where I give like 10 or 20 tips, but I'll highlight, I'll highlight a couple right now. And so if you like these, imagine what the others will be like, and you can go access them for free. But um, writing a children's book that kids want to read and that buyers want to buy and parents want to read over and over and over <laughs> is an art. So I'll say this first. A lot of people will say, oh, when I retire, I'm going to write for children because, you know, the books are so short and then I'll, I'll make a livable wage. And we just all roll our eyes when we hear that because it's actually the hardest type of literature to write of all of the literatures because you have to both engage a child and an adult simultaneously. You have to get the adult to pull out their wallet and say, okay, every night when their kid says, read it again, read it again. And you've got to get a kid who's excited about it. So now I just made it sound impossible, but clearly it's been done and it can be done. Um, the way I approach a children's book that is good is again, uh, a feeling. Giving the opportunity for the reader to feel something is what makes it good. And then I think also providing a space where a child can see Another childlike figure, whether it's an animal or a really old man who's kind of personified as a kid or a child themselves, overcoming challenges on their own. In real life, kids are lectured to, corrected, taught, instructed all day, every day, right? There's not a lot of room in real life experience for kids to realize that they have it within themselves to overcome anything uh, without a rescuer or a helicopter or a bulldozer coming in to fix it, right? So I think one way to make a children's book very good is to consider stories that do just that, that represent a child who overcomes obstacles, has a dream, has a goal, gets hit along the way, you know, with obstacles that prevent them and they overcome it. Um, yeah, you have 28 pages of story on average to do that. And you have about 700 words to do it. So that's not a lot. And what it means is that every word you use has to matter. So maybe my rough draft is 2,000 words. And I just let it be 2,000 words knowing I'm going to have to cut it down. I just need to get it out. But after that, I'm going to go back. I'm going to break it up into those scenes that equate to the 28 pages. And I'm going to begin to say, okay, where is my favorite scene so far? How can I get it down to the fewest number of words, but still say the same thing 
And then how can I do that for every single section of the book? Remembering that you're going to have an artist whose job is to tell the story through art with you. So not everything has to be said. A lot of it's going to be in the art. It's a dance in a partnership between the two. So remembering to not overtell, leave room for the artist you're going to hire to do something. Um, and then just make sure every word you use is powerful. Every single word should be moving the story forward in some way. It makes you be much, much more efficient than uh, somebody writing, like I said, 50, 60,000 words. Yeah. I mean, I know my book, How to Quit Your Job with Rental Properties, it's like 65,000 words. I had also wrote a book called Lasting Marriage. It was getting to be like 90,000 words. I had to cut it down <laughs> because it was so long because you just keep filling it with words. But to that's cut right. it down to 700 words, like that's like you have to tell the same story. Oh, man. So uh, one of the our kids' favorite books that they love is uh, The World According to Corbin, According right? According to Corbin, yep. Yeah, they they love that because it it paints okay. pictures. It really shows so much. There we go. So <laughs> according to Corbin, it basically, I love it because the art art in it is so fantastic, which we're definitely going to talk about the art, which we'll in a second. But the way the storytelling, and the, the arc, the flow of the book, it really, really mm -hmm. helps the kid to be like, grab in. Oh, I could picture myself like Corbin. Yes. They just love it. So yeah. So how many books have you written right now that are children's books? I have... I have eight children's picture books. Three of those are translations of current books. So five unique stories. Um, according to Corbin is also in German. I have one that's a foster adopt story called Speranza Sweater. That one is in German and in Spanish. And then I have three other stories that are just in English. Published. That's fantastic. So yeah, yeah. And <laughs> you, you're definitely, you're an author. So you already have, uh, was it two other, uh, one, one, the fiction book, you know, while we slept and then also, um, reclaiming hope. Was there another book that you have? Yeah. There? I have parenting children of trauma. So that's a little bit, that's again, specific to people who've had to foster and adopt, but really anyone who's had connections to children of trauma to know how to interact with them the best way. So I wholeheartedly, um, endorse, Marcy, she is fantastic. Her husband's fantastic. I love these guys. I love my wife and I love hanging out with them. And so everything that they put out, it's like, it's great stuff. Mm -hmm. And plus, I know that she's a good storyteller. She's a good author. She is really, really good at that. And okay, so let's jump back into the children's book because mm -hmm. I can probably tell a story. Let's say I'm okay at telling a story and I could learn how to do that. Um, I could learn how to, you know, make sure I cut it down to more, make it more concise and all that sort of stuff. But I literally cannot draw. Drawing is like something I would never do. What do I do with the drawing? Yeah, that's so great. That's me too. My husband's an artist and I'm hoping one day he'll do he'll do one of my books or multiple books. But I, I hire my artist. And you know what, Dusty, this is my favorite part because I get to I get to develop people. I'll give you a story. Um Daniela. Daniela did according to Corbin. I found her on upwork.com. She's got a little picture in here for those of you who are able to see. Oh, well. I guess and the art little... is really, really good. Yes. Oh, 100%. She did it. She's amazing. Yes. I found her. She was living in, um, oh boy. Now I'm going to, somewhere in the, in the, was it Romania? She was in Romania. I don't think she'd had another book published yet. I think it was her very first full book. I could be wrong on that, but um, I paid her $500 to do the full book. So what I do is I go on upwork.com. This is my preference. There's a number of places to go. There's at 100 covers now has begun to help 
authors find illustrations as well as do the formatting and cover. Um, getyourbooksillustrated.com. I've had some connection with. They, they're helping authors find illustrators. I love finding them myself. So I go to upwork.com. I post, I have a job posting template that I use. And I just say, here's what I'm looking for. This is the art style that I love. And I'm thinking of for this book. Here's how many pages, the, the con, you know, content, the synopsis, all the things. People apply after I get like 80 applications and I don't want to handle any more. I turn off the job and I go through them and I look at their portfolios and I send them follow-up questions. And sometimes they'll send me sketches depending on whether they want to or not. And I, I get to go through that process. So every single illustrator, all five of them, Oh, four of my five, I think I was their very first full book. So I was the first person to really take a chance on them for the entire book project. The other one, I think from Indonesia had had a couple of, of opportunities. And so I've had Indonesia, Brazil, Romania, Ukraine, and the U.S. That Daniela, who was in Romania, who I paid $500 to after she did my book, I thought she amazing quality work. I recommended her to everybody. I put her on my coaching lists, my recommended outsourcers. You know, I'm, I'm talking about her on all of my author visits, all the things. She began to get more work. As of maybe three years after my book, I learned that she was now able to charge $3,500 per book. Wow. She was in such high demand. She was charging $3,500 per book, which is a very standard professional rate for someone who's seasoned. And that's that quality too. Very fair. It's that quality. And she was able to move from Romania to London. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I feel that the illustration process, while it's about finding the best quality work I can for my book, I'm also getting to develop people and give them a chance and coach them a bit through the process, believe in them in the way that I needed someone to believe in me and give me a chance and coach me through the process. And then I've been able to see them live off of their income. I mean, $500 is what I pay all of them. And that's, that goes a long way in some of these Eastern European places. Um, and I do other things like there's other perks that I try to offer them because I know that's a low rate, but, but I know that they're going to end up like Daniela where they can charge 3,500 and I can't afford them anymore. I actually had to get a different <laughs> illustrator for the second book in the series. It's you, you wouldn't know. It's amazing. It's the oh, same, look at that. Yeah. same good quality work is according to Corbin, but I had to find someone who could replicate it because I couldn't afford Daniela anymore. I'm like, I, need, <laughs> I need to build it into the contract. And if I develop you, I still get you for $500 for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> you do. But well, I, that's just, the thing. Yeah. I was thinking about uh, $3,500. Like for me, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of money, especially for a children's book. Hopefully we'll make that much money back. But how do we... How, how do we know how much money to pay? I, I you obviously mm-hmm. really helped Danielle. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like she should be giving you commission for every book <laughs> that she, I'm just joking. But that's fantastic that you're such a giver. You really want to help. And you're like, hey, it's going to be $500, but you're going to get more business out of that. Um, how do we know how much to pay? Because, well, like how do we maybe word that a little differently? So knowing we, if we're writing a book, that's going to be a children's book. We might not make, it's not, it's not going to be like, uh, billions of people are going to be buying it. You're going to get a smaller set of people buying it. How do we justify spending a lot of money or $800? Like people that don't have a lot of money, how do we, how do we do that? And what should we do thinking about the artwork? Cause it seems like artwork is a big deal. Artwork is a big deal. It's, it's, 
I don't want to say it's more important than the text of your story, but it is how people will make a decision right away. I don't know how many times as a mama I've walked into a store, picked up a book because I liked how it looked. Then I'm engaging with the story and deciding, do I like it? Right. So it's it's the first glance when people say don't judge a book by its cover. That'd be that'd be ideal. But it's just they do. People judge books by their cover. So the artwork is so important. Um, And you're right that even though children's books are the most profitable industry wide, they're also the most competitive. So it's harder to make money fast with children's books versus some of the other genres. If you stick with it like you do a marathon Um, you can get to a livable wage with children's picture books. I'm not there with my picture books specifically. I would say I'm there with all of my hustling put together. (laughs) But if I were just relying on them, I would need to probably publish a good 15 more. Like just keep publishing them to get a fan base of people who are so excited for my next one that I already have ready-made buyers. So when it comes to the artwork, this is my approach though. It's my name, And I care a lot about the quality that's associated with my name. So I'm not going to compromise anywhere in any of my books because I don't want to be sitting at a table doing a book signing embarrassed by my book, right? I want to be proud of it. And so for me to decide I was going to pay 500, I I just set that for myself. It wasn't totally arbitrary, but it's definitely low in the industry as a whole. It's very fair for people who've never had consistent work with it, like four of my five authors. Um, And knowing that I get to develop them, that it goes a little further, that I will let them sell my book at a wholesale cost. Like I'll sell them my book wholesale and they can make a profit. Like there's different ways I try to support them. But I feel fair about that. The other piece about Upwork.com is that they can bid on it. They can say, I'll do that for more. I'll do that for less. And so there is some space for them to say, what they're willing to do it for. They don't have to take the job. Um, Also, it's all tax deductible because it's not just, I want to be a writer someday. I'm going to publish a book. The day you publish, you've just started a new business. That's how the taxes see you, (laughs) the IRS sees you. So everything you do becomes tax deductible. So the cool thing was for the first few years, you know, I I spent more than I made. <laughs> and I should say a few years. I had a good year last year where I made more than I spent. That was exciting. But at first, that's how I saw it. This is an investment into a new business. Every new business has an investment. I want my name to be associated with high quality work. I'm developing people and it will pay off, but it's a marathon. So I'm going to have to stick with it. So I think each author has to decide for themselves, like what are the boundaries on that expenditure for them and be willing to do the work of finding the high quality they want within that budget. And there's a number of ways to do that, but I would say that would be my recommendation for someone saying, eh, how do I put this all together and afford it? Yeah. Yeah. And same thing with really any type of work that you're going to get. It's really just have to do some researching. You have to figure out what people are going to, what they charge currently, and then see if you can develop somebody. Uh, I know for like writing for master passive income or writing articles for successful unemployed, I go to fiverr.com and I look up authors from other countries because I just, I don't want to spend $800 for an article. I'm like, that's so much money um, for an article, especially you got to, they want, you're supposed to put out like an article every other day or something, or like at least twice a week. And that's a lot of money. I don't have that money to do to spend. And so what I've done is I find writers who really have like no huge experience doing writing. And I'm saying like 30 bucks, 40 bucks per article. And I'm helping them learn how to write better. So, and I'm, as, as they're writing, 
like I send it back to them. I said, these are the edits. You got to write better and write like this. And they get better as they go. Plus me working with them, I give them five stars because they're getting better. Yes. They're getting better. Yeah. And yeah. then they get more clients because they, so you got to be able to be okay with developing. If you're going to pay less, if you're, if you have a lot of money and yeah. you say, I'm going to pay high and just not have to worry about that. Go right ahead. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's you know, most of us starting. We're not going to be able to do that. Okay. So one thought that I had was a series of books. I know like, you know, think of like Harry Potter or any, any series of books that like you just keep writing books because it makes people want to follow yes. the character yes. and keep making more. One quick thought. And I, I also want to talk to you about the series, but one quick thought is you're building up an author instead of saying, you know, like just for the blanket for every book. Now we're going to do $500. Say, I want to hire you for five books. And these five yes. books, I'm going to do $500 yeah. for five books and you're going to grow and get better. But I, I want to contract with you so that you're going to do, because we want to have a consistent series. That could be another option, but talk to us about how the thought of possibly doing a series of books. So people want to, Hey, the new one from Marcy came out. Let's go buy it. Yes. I would say that the money is in a series, almost in any genre be, for the very reason you said, if you do it well and, and you get those first readers they're looking for what you're going to do next. I have made a series of a couple of my books and, and it's fun. Like, like bath time magic, right? Like everyone's like Corbin's back and he's in a new adventure. Like that's so exciting. When, when's Hannah's going to have her adventure? Cause she's a character, a minor character in these stories. Um, so there is that. I, th I would say the money is in the series. Now, even just writing books that are not in a series, as much as you can connect them in some way, or at least connect to the same kind of audience. It's like writing a series in that you're just writing a lot and people want to keep reading what it is you write. And so I found that with my adult nonfiction for the foster adopt community. I've had a number of people write to me through my website and say, I just want to read every single thing you write. Keep doing it. Like people are begging me, begging to pay me more money to say things. Right. So that's because I've written more than one thing to the same audience. Uh, developed their trust, developed a sense of credibility and authority in that, in that sphere. And now they're wanting more of it. So anyway, all that to say, yes, it write write a series or at least write for the same audience on repeat. And that's the fastest way so, I think, to making money. Could you, is it, is it a thought to just do five books or would it be, let's just open it. Let's just, in case I want to write a new one, because, you know, if you just say I'm doing a trilogy, well, then you're stuck. Then you're third, then you can maybe do a spinoff or you have to kind of like yeah. say, okay, I wasn't really a trilogy. I'm moving on and doing more. But um, do we go into writing thinking, or should we go into writing thinking, I'm going to create a series. Is that something we should do? And how, if we do, how would we do it? Yeah. I mean, you should. I'm being a little hypocritical to say that because I didn't. <laughs> and I have an adult, young adult nonfiction, I'm sorry, it's a young adult fiction novel that's sitting drafted and even partially edited. And part of my own inner resistance to hitting publish on that book is that it, it should be a trilogy. And that sort of terrifies me. <laughs> it's so foreign to what I feel comfortable writing, but the story would not go away. So full disclosure, <laughs> I'm going to give you advice that I'm working on following myself. Yes, you should go into it envisioning a series of some kind, whether it's fiction and you're doing trilogies or, I mean, there's some children's books that are like 15 books in a series. You can keep going and going. If it's adult nonfiction, then again, like just continuing to give to your same general audience, which is something you've done. I mean, I know your first one was real specific on, on a realtor, not realtor, but, um, sort of real estate, right? real estate, real estate, real estate properties. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and then your next book was, connected 
but a little more broad, right? But still the the same audience would gain value from that. Um, it supported your first book and then expanded it. So definitely I would say if you're looking for the income piece, the more that you can keep writing for the same audience, the better. Now there's a Facebook group called 20 books to 50, 20 books to 50 K. And it's based on the premise that once you've published 20 books and not just hit publish, done good quality work, like learned what that looks like. You've gotten a good cover. You've thought through your title, good book description, your categories on Amazon. Like you've done the work times 20, you should be able to make 50 K a month. To, to live on with your books. So does that happen for everyone? No, but that is sort of an average of authors who've done that, made it their hustle, are able to have a livable income. Well, shoot, even if you did half of that, everybody's lives would change if they had $25,000 extra in their pocket, not doing any more work. Like that books, those books are still there. They're still going to sell. Now, if you put out more books, it helps sell the previous ones, which that's why Stephen King just literally keeps writing, keeps writing, keeps writing, because he just makes more. Every book is like, oh, there's more money. Let me just make more. Let me print more money. I'll write a book and then there's more money coming in. So yeah, I, I love that idea that even if you get to 25 or $20,000, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. <laughs> So it's great. how long, how many books do you think if uh, going on the track of 20 books, how long would it take to actually write 20 books, 20 good books, do all the research. And really, if we made a series, how long would you think it would, is that going to be like a 20 year process is it like a eight year? What do you think? Yeah, I, um, so I want to back up. I just said 20 books to 50 K and now I'm not sure. Guys, how much should I have said per month or is that in a year? I don't know. 20 books to 50 K go to their Facebook group. Either way, 50 K a month or 50 K a year on books you've already written. That residual income is good. I just don't want to be misleading. So now I'm double guessing myself um, to your question. Okay. My two adult nonfiction books I wrote in four weeks. They were published within 90 days. So and they're good. I mean, they're, they're very good books. I get feedback from them all the time. Now, how did I do that? Well, I stopped all the rest of life <laughs> and I, and I wrote about things I know really well. I did include research. I did, um, surveys so that I included the stories of other people as well, all still within that 90 day time frame. Um, I know some people who will do like write a book in a weekend and that's probably a shorter book and it's probably self-help, um, versus fiction, which is, usually triple the length of a, an adult nonfiction book. Um, so it can be done that fast. And that doesn't mean it should be. If you feel like you're compromising on quality to get it done that quickly, then take the time you need. But I think the more you can invest in it and just get it done, um, it's sort of like ripping off the Band-Aid. You know, the slower that you take doing it, the more reasons and excuses you'll come up with for not finishing. I mean, 80%, I've heard, of at least Western world want to publish a book, one to 2% do. Even still with self-publishing, one to 2% do. Why? How many of that percent start it? I'm sure a huge percent start their books, but one to 2% of them actually ever hit publish. So just get it done. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I completely agree. And thinking of 
getting that first book done, getting that first book book published. It's kind of like the idea of buying your first rental property. Now, a lot of my students, they don't have rental properties. Now, some of them already have two or three. And so I help teach them how to scale up and, and get more. But getting that first, that very, very first book done, just like getting that very, very first rental property, that's the hardest one to get done because you're learning, you're nervous, you're anxious, you feel like, oh, what, what, what do I have to say that people are going to want? You you get through all that once you hit publish and you actually, like, I, I remember the first time I wrote my first book, I waited like another month before I, it was done. I could have yeah. published it, but I waited because I was like so nervous and so scared of people, <laughs> people to think. And now publishing a book or publishing course, cause I've done it so many times. It's like, here we go. Here's done. Cause I've done it. Yeah, so right. talk to us about that first book. And then mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about scaling it. So yep. we write the, write the first book and the, yep. the idea of writing that and getting that published and then scaling it to where we can get to 20 books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That first book for me happened because I joined a, a course that taught me how to do it because I joined self-publishing school that gave me literally every single step I needed. At this point, they also give you a coach, a whole community like so many resources. (laughs) Um, But I needed that. So all I did was follow the steps. Now, what they couldn't do was write the book for me. I had to, I had to do that. (laughs) There was a four week break in the course that said, stop, get out of the course, go write the book. So I I did that, but there's even guidance on, okay, now you've written it. What does the first self edit look like? What does the second self-edit look like? How do you know when it's ready for an editor? The importance of an editor. Please, people, do not publish a book that hasn't seen an editor. You'll discredit writers (laughs) all around the world. And we're trying to show that self-published literature brings up the quality of literature and not bring it down. So little, little side point there. How to get a good quality editor. Make sure you're putting out a good. So then you've got other eyes on it, giving you that feedback too. You know, take if you need to, because whatever you're writing needs it. Like there's beta readers out there. Find your audience member who's willing to read it before you hit publish to give you feedback as an audience member. Did this do what you wanted it to do? Um, And so I had all of the steps I needed. I never had to, to figure it out. I think that was why I got it done so quickly because the learning had been done for me and I just had to do what I was being told. I would recommend that for everybody, like especially for that first book, like just make the learning as easy as possible. Learn the bare minimum on your own and let someone else teach you what has already been discovered. Um, So that, that was the first book. Now, is it still terrifying to put out there? Absolutely, because the difference between writing and publishing is now you've made it available for people to critique and tell you what they think about it, but you've also made it available for impact. And haters are going to hate. You're always going to find people who want to just be critical or who aren't your audience and read it anyway. Okay, that's just solidifies who your audience is. But I can't tell you how worthwhile it is every time I get an email from somebody or through my website, I get regular feedback from readers saying, your book was the only book that was actually a voice of hope in my situation or wow, you just saved our marriage because even though I'd been trying to tell my husband this was a child of trauma and how they they triangulate, like until he heard you say it in your book, he didn't believe me (laughs) or whatever it is, right? Like there's nothing like it. Okay, so that was book one, scaling it up. So so I'll get to scaling in just a second because you said something I definitely want to touch on. I remember when I was first writing my book, I published it and um, get some feedback and you 
look at the comments. You get one stars because people are like, well, especially for something like real estate, they're like, oh, this is, this guy's just trying to, you know, write this book to make money and he doesn't know anything about real estate or whatever it might be like, they'll, yeah. they're going to give you one star. But I specifically remember you uh, like putting something on in like one of the Facebook groups or something where you said something about, hey, one stars are still good. Like talk to us about the comments, but then also should we really read or take stock in the comments? <laughs> like what are your thoughts? Okay. Should we take stock in the comments? Yes and no. We should filter which ones we do and which ones we don't. So for example, I had a very few low, low reviews and they're usually people who I think, oh, okay. Yeah. You weren't who I was writing for. For example, one woman left a comment that my book Reclaiming Hope might actually turn people away from fostering or adopting. And that was a problem for her. Like, oh my goodness, people might decide not to do this after the book. That's not the point of my book. I give alternatives for someone who decides that's not how they should do it. There are other ways to support orphan care. It doesn't matter. Point being, that was her comment. And, um, there are times in my own personal storytelling where I will share how our faith was the support. I'm not, that's not what the whole book is about. It's not my only strategy, but when I'm sharing our journey, that was a big piece of how we survived some hard times. And I, and I'm just authentic with that. So she made a comment about, man, I wish there was a book that had nothing spiritual in it and where everyone would walk away wanting to foster or adopt. And my heart was racing and I was like, Oh my gosh, she hates me. She hates my book. I'm a horrible person. no, she was looking for a book that could say adoption adoption and foster care is easy and you don't need Jesus to do it. And I was like, good luck finding that book. I'm pretty convinced it's not written yet because no one's had that experience. And that's okay. It's okay to recognize that someone read your book. Now, here's the cool thing. Other people can read her review and either realize that they're just like her and spare themselves the journey with my book, which is great because I didn't write it for those people. <laughs> I wrote it for people who are open maybe to some kind of faith support, whatever that might look like for them, and also recognizing it's not for everybody. So how could we do it differently? So people are going to read that and either say, oh, I'm like her. I'm going to go find the book I'm really looking for. This isn't it. Or they're going to read it and say, wow, this sounds exactly like the book I want to read. And they're going to read it. And in fact, I'll say that there are there's some good statistics out there of book sales actually going up when a book has a spectrum of reviews, when they're just four and five stars, people tend to be a little distrustful of a book that only has four or five stars. So I also self-talk myself through that. Okay, one star review, people will read it now and go, this is credible. Like not just her friends and family <laughs> are reading and reviewing, like everybody's reading and reviewing. So I think we can learn from our reviews. That's where I said yes and no. I think we can learn if someone has a legitimate thing that you can go back and improve the book, you can always improve a book you've published and published an update. Always. You can always be improving what you've already done. You don't have to wait till it's perfect to publish. You do your best and then it grows with you. That's okay. And you can learn from some of those reviews. And then there's going to be other reviews like that one where I go, okay, this is actually going to be a support to people coming, even though it's one star or two stars. Um, and she's not my audience. I'm not writing for her. And that's okay. That's okay. It's just irritating how people just give one stars <laughs> flippantly. Like even yeah. people that haven't bought the book, they just yeah, look at sure. the title and oh, this guy has no, like, like, are you kidding me? Like, just go away. Like, anyways, we can go yes. off that So everybody star. who's just reading, really if you've read a book and you've liked it, go review it. It means so much to the author to have reviews. And it means so much to other buyers. You know, you've always read the reviews before you've bought something. So be that support for someone else. And if you didn't like it, 
Um, there's still kind ways to do that. I would say leave a review in such a way that supports the work of the author, but also makes it clear to other buyers whether or not it would be a good fit for them. But read the That's book great. before you leave a review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely wholeheartedly agree with that. So it says scale. You've already talked yeah. about um, the 20 books to 50K. If that's mm-hmm. the case, it because honestly, it does seem like the, I mean, the more books you write, the more money you make, the more they'll sell the other ones. Is that the best way to scale or is there something else? Like how should oh, we scale yeah. the business that where we make more money? Yeah. So I'll tell you again, full disclosure, my, like my heart, my insides are, I just want to be that writer in a cabin by the beach who just writes and publishes and I don't have to market. I don't, I don't have to show up anywhere. The money just comes. That's what I want the world to be like. But the reality is that's not what the world is like. And so I've had to expand myself into uncomfortable places in order to do the thing I love, which is writing the book. So I'm going to say that for career author types like me who just want to do that, that's not the best way to scale your business, though it's not that do it. If that's what you want to do, do it. Um, but I would say the, the other ways that will do it faster, I'll word it that way. The other ways that will do that more quickly for you would be to build some kind of business off of your books. So for example, if you're a children's writer, that's going to look like doing school visits, which you should be paid to do. You should sell books and you should charge a fee for your time to go and do a school visit. Many, many schools have a budget for that. So that could be your business as a children's author. I do school visits and I write these books. Um It could be speaking, developing a speaking gig. Once you've published, people ask you to speak. I didn't look for that first. I haven't looked for any of the stages I've been on. I've been invited to every single one because people found my books and I already had a level of credibility with them for that reason. So maybe you want to scale up by saying, I'm going to have a speaking fee and I'm going to pursue my audience in both venues through the written word and through speaking. Okay. Now maybe you're an introvert like me and that idea right there just made you cringe. Like, no, I do not want to be in front of people. I don't even want to talk to my audience in real life. I just want to give them books and never make eye contact with them. There's no judgment. I get it. So another way that you could do it, and Dusty, you've done this, I think, is create a course of some kind to further support what you were teaching. And so that might be Um, In my case, for foster adoption, maybe I could create a whole course on strategies and tips that you can use with your kids who've come from places of trauma. You know, my book, Parenting Children of Trauma, is the lead, the, the funnel that would connect people to my course, which I create once. I update it. I tweak it. I keep it relevant. But then people just pay you and go through it. And you never have to make that actual eye contact and yet you're continuing to help people. So I think there's a number of ways that you can take your book and build a business. Some people use it as a business card. Um, There are a number of realtors in real estate. You could do that, right? Where, hey, I want to coach people. I want a coaching business. I want to do one-on-one and have people hire me as a consultant or as a coach. And I need a business card. Your book can become that business card. Yeah, you want it to sell. But if you also just give it to people, they're going to go, oh, you're not just any realtor. You're not just any coach who's self-proclaimed themselves to be an expert. You've actually written on it. You're selling it. I see the reviews on Amazon. You're credible. I want to work with you. So I would say, depending on which of those feels the most life-giving, pursue that and find a way that you can scale up exactly as you said, what you're doing with your biz, with your books Um, giving yourself greater capacity to help more people in different ways 
but doesn't necessarily need you nine to five. I, I completely agree with that. And what you're saying is basically what it really comes down to, or at least it boils down to me, is it's the same content that you're putting out into the book. Yep. You're able to share it in many, many different yes. avenues mm-hmm. and venues because somebody may love, 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 love reading a book. But other people literally don't, like they, they hate reading books. They'd rather listen to a podcast or they'd rather take a course or watch yep. it on YouTube or some other way that they consume that content. Yes. So if you're able to you know get that that content out in different mediums, you're really going to be able to do that. So man, that is fantastic. Now, Marcy, are you ready to jump in the rapid fire round? Yes. Let me drink my water and then we'll do it. Okay. <laughs> so the rapid fire round, I'm going to ask you big, broad questions. You should be able to knock this out. All and right. um, the first one, you're already doing it because you're a missionary. But the first question is, hopefully you have a little extra time than working a nine to five job. You have a little extra time to give and help other people, make the world a better place and all that sort of stuff. How are you currently making either the world a better place, the people around you or your community or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our work here, um, my husband is the primary assigned person in his role. He works at a school called Black Forest Academy and teaches ceramics to the kids. You can look all that up separate to learn what that is. And I fill in more gaps. So there are times where I've worked as a substitute teacher Um, All of the teachers at our school are self-supported. No one is paid staff. So there's not like sick leave. So if someone's sick, sometimes I'll fill in that way. Um, We've had over a million Syrian refugees come to Germany in the last few years. And so I have tried to have early on, I had a lot more um, interaction with them on a regular basis, but I love work with refugees. Um, I also do my therapist stuff. So even though I don't do that as a practice, I've made myself available to our mission, Teach Beyond, to support missionaries that we have in isolated locations. So I usually have a few people that I'm meeting with weekly who are the only person they know from America in Japan or somewhere in the Middle East, and they get to connect with me. And so there are ways that I can I do. I have all this white space, so to speak, that I can make myself available in ways that still support people. But I also have full days that are just nothing, like just white space. My books are selling. (laughs) My coaching business is, is, you know, paying me and I can just have entire days free to replenish, recharge and do what's healthy for me. That's fantastic. Now, you've given us so much great insights in the entire process of doing self-publishing and um, getting children's books. But is there any a bit of advice? Like what is one bit of advice that you would give somebody who wants to get started doing this? They already know they're going to get started. So we already, okay, we're getting started. Any, any one bit of advice outside of everything you've already given us that we would know or should know to get started? Specifically with like writing and publishing books? Yes. I, yeah, you know, I have had to work on my mentality around money. Again, full disclosure, I don't want to ever make it sound like something was easy or I just am good at this. So I think that early investment I made into self-publishing school to learn how to do the process was so hard for me. I felt like I was taking money from my family, from our ministry somehow, like I just felt like I was robbing us and I didn't see it as an investment into a dream I had as an investment into the people I could impact. I just, I didn't yet. I still made that leap because I, there was hope. There was hope that everything they promised would be true. 
And fortunately it was. So that being said, I would, I just would encourage everyone to invest in themselves. And I'm not saying break the bank. Don't be wise. There's always wisdom, but I think we can easily end up in a scarcity mentality. I was raised in welfare, I said. So it was bred into me that, that life is full of scarcity and, and yet now in these last three or four years, there've been a number of times where I've invested a large amount of money into growing myself, my business, starting with that very first decision with self-publishing school. And it's made all of the difference every time. And I've done it again wisely. I've done it with prayer. I've done it with good stewardship, but I've had to work to have a healthy mindset around what it means to release money from my family as an investment into this. So I guess that would be my encouragement both to be willing, but to do any work. Like if that's kind of resonating with you, that it would be hard for you and I like to release money to start, like I would sit with that and ask why, and what are the messages that you hear in your head about who you are if you put money into something that matters to you, and then do some good work reframing it. Like if you've got something to offer and people are out there waiting to pay you to offer it, this money that you could invest in yourself to learn how to publish or how to be a good writer is already coming back to you. And in fact, I'll just quick story. I had a student I was coaching because I do work as a coach to help people. That's one of the things I've done is, hey, I've learned this process. Maybe I can help other people with the process. And so I coach people to write from their, I think I want to write all the way through publishing. And then now how do I sell the book? So I had a writer that I was coaching and I said that exact line to her. I said, people are waiting for your story. You <laughs> they're waiting for your story. You've got to get this done because I know they want it. And then she published it. It's been a bestseller now for two straight years, two straight years. She wrote a book, um, on the highly sensitive person, Benita Esposito. You can go find her book. Um, one of her first reviews was, was someone who said, Oh my goodness, I've been waiting my whole life for this book. I just had no idea. I'm so glad I found it. And she sent me a screenshot and we both kind of just laughed and cried together because, it's true. Not everyone will say it out loud in a review like that, but she got to hear firsthand from someone that they were waiting for her book. And so people are waiting, go write it and do it. <laughs> I love that. And I wholeheartedly agree with getting coaching or getting somebody who's literally done this before, yes. whatever yes. it is, writing books or investing <laughs> or yeah, what? Yeah, exactly. They've already done it. And that little bit of an investment in yeah. yourself. It's not, I mean, think about how much money we pay to colleges. Yes. We pay colleges $50,000, dollars $70,000 and get a piece of paper and hopefully get a job, which more than likely you're not. So yes. if you were just to invest a little bit of money into yourself, somebody who's already been there, already done that and showing you, it's going to be faster, number one, for you to get to your goal. But it's also, you're going to jump over all the landmines, the pitfalls, all those other things that you could possibly jump into and make mistakes. So many great benefits to that. So love that. That's a great, great advice. Now, if you were to go back and give yourself, I don't know, your young 13 year old self, like really, really young self, any bit of advice could be business, could be life, anything, what would it be? Mm. Oh, you know what? It would, it would be less advice and more of a, of a truthful message. I would say, Marcy, you are significant. You're, you're worthy of what I say. You're worthy of 
what people want to pay you for what you can offer. You have value to give. And I believe in you. I know that's not advice, but maybe the advice is go back to your 13 year old self and start to speak truth. Because I lived so much of my life thinking I was small, that I had nothing to offer, that especially as a Christian, how could I accept money for helping people? And that's probably a whole other podcast session (laughs) episode, but like, I just, there was some things I had to work out and that I didn't believe in myself. I had all this self-doubt and insecurity and questions about myself. And I think a lot of authors do. So I would just go back and begin telling my little self, you're worth the investment. You have something to offer. People want to pay you for it. Let them (laughs) and then go chase it down. Cause I didn't, I didn't know I'd settled. I just settled for a long time. And to your point about the college piece, I spent a lot of money in college for a degree that I, that is not making me any money right now, none, zero. And yet maybe the, let's say maybe the $15,000 that I've invested into coaching or schooling for myself as an author has all been returned over and over and continues to be. Love it. Love it. And Everything that you said, you said you would tell your 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 younger self is definitely advice. It's definitely principles. It's, it's it's just helping you as a younger person realize, hey, you have a lot of value. Like don't don't look down on yourself. Like you are a great great future, obviously future writer. Yeah. Okay, so cool. Now, what is one tool, one app, or it could be a piece of paper and pen um, that we should use that you use in your life on a day to day basis that we should look at. Hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Now my mind is racing through all of the different <laughs> apps that I use. Okay. Well, one that I like for project management is Trello, T-R-E-L-L-O. Um, I do freelance editing. Like I mentioned earlier, I try to stick with children's picture books because I'm really good at that and they're shorter. So they don't take as much as my time per dollar. Um, but I get a lot of people coming in through my website paying for that and setting themselves up in my calendar. And so Trello is a place where I can organize everyone. Um, It connects to Dropbox. It connects to a few other good business apps. And it just keeps me on track for like, who's, where's the due date for each of these people? Where am I in the process? And keeps me moving through that cycle. So that's one that I would recommend. Trello. Awesome. Now, You've written many books and we'll put all of these books inside the show notes page. So definitely look in the description of the show. You'll see, you can go and find it. So we'll put a link and hopefully all the pictures to all these books. They're fantastic. So you, everybody listening and watching, you must get these or at least, at least check them out. They're really, really good. But what is, cause you're definitely a reader. Yeah. What is one book that was really impactful for you? It could be business or a life. What is one nonfiction book that we should look at and read? Yes. I, okay. So the best, Yes by Lisa Turkhurst was, is about that. How do you choose your best yeses in life so that the no's that you say are supporting those yeses, but you're also not burning yourself out saying a yes to everything. And so we've actually pulled that book out with major life decisions, even in our marriage and in our family. There's some really practical checklists in there, but then there's just some good life principles for how to live well and make sure that we're being good stewards of our yeses. So check that one out. It's amazing. 
Definitely. Will do. Matt, Marcy, you've given us so much great insight, so much great wisdom. So if somebody wanted to reach out to you, if they want to see, hey, maybe Marcy can actually help me with these uh, you know, children's books or something like that, how can they find you and how can they reach out to you? Yeah. So my website is simple, marcypusey.com. I believe that will probably be in the show notes, but just my name.com. I am on Instagram under the same name, Twitter under the same name, Facebook under the same name. So you can find me in any of those places. And my website has a contact page as well, where a number of readers will reach me and, and I respond. I get those and I respond. So. Awesome. And for everybody watching and listening to this, uh, Jeremy, her husband and Marcy are some of my wife and myself, our favorite people. So Uh I wholeheartedly vouch for them. They are fantastic. So you you. guys are, you guys, everybody listening, definitely check out the show notes so you can see all of the books, but Marcy, thank you so much for this great, great time of teaching us how to do all this stuff. Fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I loved it. Thank you. Today's episode has been brought to you by the Real Estate Wealth Builders Membership. That's the membership that I founded teaching people how to quit their J-O-B by investing in real estate rental properties. Now, Real Estate Wealth Builders is your place to learn how to invest in real estate with five different masterclass courses group coaching with me and a private student community where we all work together, all the tools and the discounts, all the resources and everything that you need to quit your J-O-B by investing in real estate. Now, I do want to show you how to do this completely for free. If you want to learn about investing in real estate for free, I want to get you my free real estate investing course. Text the word rental to 33777. That's R-E-N-T-A-L to 33777 so you can see how you can quit your job that J-O-B by investing in real estate. I'll show you how to find properties, how to use other people's money to buy properties, and how to scale the business to be successfully unemployed just like I did. Now, did you also know that there are video versions of each and every single episode on the Successfully Unemployed show? Well, I did record every single one of these for you. I recorded them for you so you will be able to learn from the experts themselves, see what they're doing, see everything that they are talking about on this show visually and all their examples, all their slides, all their pictures that they even draw. Everything is on there. Go to successfullyunemployed.co forward slash YouTube. Or if you just go to YouTube and type in successful unemployed, more than likely you're going to find me. So successfullyunemployed.co forward slash YouTube. And I would truly appreciate it if you subscribe to Successful Unemployed on YouTube and wherever you're listening to this podcast, subscribe to this show so that you can always get every bit of new information on how to quit your J-O-B. Also, if you got anything out of the show, Share it with just one person. Share it with just one person so that they can see the light that it is so much better to not work a job, be successful, unemployed, and be your own boss. All right, guys, this is it for today's show. I will see you next week. See ya. See ya.